You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 57. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, I announce a new position, talk about some recent experiences with digital recording in the field, and announce a new service from DigTech. The App of the Day segment will rock you into the 21st century with a teardown of iBeacons. Let's get to it. Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. As I mentioned in the intro, and as you may have gathered, I'm here by myself. Uh, Chris Sims backed out of the podcast for various reasons. He's uh, doing a little heavier focus on his own show and some other things. So um, thanks, Chris, for 50, well, I guess 40 some odd good episodes. And because um, we had a different we had different hosts for the first few episodes. I don't even remember how many. But um, that being said, uh, I'm looking for another co-host. This podcast is just way more fun with two people. So... Uh, if you're passionate about about archaeology, if you're passionate about technology, if you're interested in helping find interviews and topics, uh, interested in the App of the Day segment, and can bring fresh new ideas, then send me an email. Um, that's uh, I just need somebody. You actually don't even need to know anything about technology, quite frankly. Um, you can just be the person that you know wants to learn about something and bring stuff in, and then we can find interviews, or maybe I'll know something or something like that, and we can just chat about it. The whole point of this podcast is to talk about technology as it relates to archaeology. So feel free to send me a message if you're interested in doing this. We try to record every two weeks. Uh, I try to have a set time, although that's flexible. I understand the field season. Um, But we try to figure out what day and time can work best for us to record. And hopefully that's a few weeks ahead of the release date for the show. Um, And sometimes we have to be flexible when we're interviewing someone and they can only record at a certain time. So um, you don't need any special gear. Uh, we'll probably work on getting you a microphone because you can get a pretty decent one for about 60 or $70, um, and I, I can help do that. And uh, uh, really all you need is a computer and a solid internet connection. Uh, we use Skype to record, so you'll need a Skype account, and that's about it. Uh, I'd like to, if we get you a microphone, get you set up with some recording software, which we can hook you up with, and you can record on your side, and that way we just use the Skype conversation to monitor the call, and then we bring both solid audio tracks together and then we have really good audio. So that's the way we want to move everything in the APN. So um, anyway, if you're interested, email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com if you're interested. Or if you just want more information, I can give you that too. Otherwise, it's just me flying solo for right now. All right, so I've talked about Tapforms before. Tapforms is an iOS only that's... uh, Apple software, iOS-only software that works on desktop and tablets and smartphones. And I've been using it for, it's going on seven years now. It's, it's really just a database application that's less of a database in the traditional sense because there is a database in the background, but it's more of a form creation software. So you can create forms to use in the field. Of course, I've talked about this a lot if you're familiar with the Archaeotech podcast. Um, if you're not and have an iOS device, 
you, you can't go wrong with tap forms. Um, even if you don't use it for archaeology, it comes with 30 plus built in forms that are actually really good for just organizing your own life. Um, in fact, I use their default. I think I made some slight changes to it, but I use the default web logins form um, just as a password manager. I've got over 200 passwords in there because I make slight changes to my password, which you should do rather than use the same one for everything. But who can remember all that? So I keep it in there and that syncs across all my devices using either iCloud or Dropbox. I've tried both and they both work fairly well. But it syncs across all your devices so you can always have the changes everywhere you go. Um, there are some syncing issues, but everything has that. So uh, the other thing with Tapforms is it's incredibly, how should I say, versatile. It, uh, you know, you can use it in a multitude of ways in the field. Um, there's, there's radio buttons, which means you press one and, and all the others go out, or you press a second one and all the others go out. So you can only have one selection. There's checkboxes, there's dropdowns, uh, which they call pick lists. There's... Um, there's all kinds of things you can do uh, with with these. I've just recently discovered um, the color field application, which means I can add a simple field, and I put this way at the bottom, uh, so you, so it's the last thing you see when you're recording. But I basically have three statuses. It's called a status field, and I created a pick list, uh, and these have uh, incomplete, in work or review. And then peer-reviewed or complete, depending on the form, okay? So those are red, yellow, and green, pretty traditional colors. Now, when you first open a new record, they start out as red, okay, uh, because it starts out as incomplete, obviously. And the nice thing is, in the list view on the left side, you can see that little, this is a thin little line, no matter what device you're on, that says red. This is incomplete. So you can quickly see which ones need review. So let's say um, one way to use this is to, you have your techs out there, you're the crew chief, let's say. They fill out some field forms, uh, maybe inventory forms or photos or whatever, and they finish the form to the best of their ability, and then they mark the form as review, so yellow. Once they send them back to you, you go over them as the crew chief, do the double check or whoever does the double check on those because everything should be checked twice. And then uh, you just mark them as peer-reviewed or complete. Now, you can have any number of steps in here. I just chose three. But if you've got other steps in the process, like let's say you have uh, – um, you have steps for this has been exported and then, you know, the data has been processed or the GIS has been done. Anything you want. I mean, you can add in 50 million steps if you want. It just really is no limit. So you might run out of colors that you can distinguish, but that's, you get the point. Um, anyway, uh, I've, I've been working with tap forms for a long time and it's, uh, there are some frustrations with it. There are some things I don't like. Um, there are some things I really like, uh, but the point is, because I've been working this, with this for so long, you know, my learning curve for learning new things on it is pretty low. But if you first open tap forms, it can be a little intimidating creating new forms. Um, I mean, you can create your basic form data, don't get me wrong, but if you really want to make this thing robust and really want to make it work well for the field, then you have to do some tricky things. There are definitely some idiosyncrasies with it that I guess you just wouldn't know right off the bat. One of the ways to quickly learn tap forms if you're going to do it is to go through all the sample forms that they have. He tries to cover some of the things in there. Um, there are some trickier things that I do with tap forms that I just had to figure out on my own. And uh, and now I use those in all my forms and, and the forms that I sell my clients. So anyway, um, there's a lot of stuff there. But what I wanted to talk about as well is I was in the field last week and I just wanted to talk about some, um, I guess, frustrations that I may have had. Uh, I've been using Tap Forms on an iPad Mini 4 and on my iPhone 7 Plus. 
Now, we did a project last week where, I mean, if you know anything about an iPhone 7, uh, let alone a Plus, uh, they're pretty big phones, okay? They're pretty good size, uh, similar to the Samsung Galaxy 7 or, or Galaxy 8. And they're just they're just a, a pretty good sized robust phone. Also, um, they do a 12 plus megapixel TIFF photo off the back of the camera. Let me say that again. 12 plus megapixel TIFF photo off the back of the camera, okay? Now you need a separate application to take a TIFF photo. But, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because the Nevada BLM requires TIFF photos, not JPEGs, um, that are 10 megapixels or higher uh, in their reports. So uh, the iPad mini 4 has an 8 megapixel camera and will not take a TIFF, okay? Just won't do it. And uh, the iPad Pro 9.7 inch and the new 10 inch one, and then the um, obviously the big 12.1 inch, um, those all take the high resolution TIFF photos. And, uh, you know, to me, though, they're just a little too big for standard survey work. Um, I would use one of those for an excavation or something like that, but they're a little big for standard survey work to, to cart around in your vest or your backpack. So anyway, um, some of the frustrations I had with this, um, because I was using it on my phone and uh, we had no cell service, we had nothing like that, uh, so that wasn't a problem. But uh, for some reason, Tapforms just kept crashing. <laughs> I shouldn't say this out loud, but um, occasionally, because I was app switching a lot, because if you take a photo in TapForms, that's not a TIFF photo, okay? It's actually a JPEG, and it's not a very good JPEG. Let's just put it that way. Um, so what I do is I take my photos in ProCam, which, you, which is another application. So I exit TapForms, take the photo in ProCam. That saves to the camera roll as a TIFF file. And then I bring that photo into TapForms rather than take a photo in TapForms. Now, the photo that TapForms has, they convert it to a JPEG. Okay, it's still, so if you export those photos, it's still a JPEG. Really, it's there as a placeholder so I can tell on my photo log what I'm looking at. When I go to actually create photo logs, I'll export all those photos out of the camera roll into their own folder. And then now I have a whole bunch of TIFF files in that folder. I'll have to rename them, do some things. Um, it's a little bit tedious, but at least you've got them. Okay, no more tedious than using a regular digital camera. So that was one frustration: is it kept uh, it kept crashing, and sometimes I actually had to restart my phone to get Tabworms to open again. And I'm not exactly sure what what the deal is there. I never used to do that. That might be something with a new operating system update. It might be, and I'll get into this in a minute. Um, the fact that the developer created Tabforms five. This is currently Tabforms four point something, depending on the device you're on. Um, he went to TapForms 5, which is a separate download and a new purchase. It's been free upgrades up to this point, but this is a separate purchase. So he may not be supporting TapForms 4.x uh, on these other devices, and that might be the case, but I'll get into that in a minute. So anyway, uh, otherwise, it worked really well. Um, every time I find I go out in the field, I, uh, I end up making a modification to my forms and then trying to populate that across all my forms. I've got probably 100 different forms that I use. Um, not you know, that's for multiple states and different things, my company, all kinds of stuff. So, um, but every time I go out there, I learn something new. So the only way you can, you can really learn something is to just use it a lot. So some of the other frustrations I've had lately, um, just because you guys need to know full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a technological, um, technophile, I guess. Uh, and I'm a technological evangelist. That's the words I'm looking for. And I love telling people, Hey, figure out how you can do this, uh, with technology, figure out how you can do this. But, 
Um, it doesn't always work 100% of the time. I mean, you might say, hey, my pad and paper work 100% of the time. Well, they don't work in the rain. They don't work when your pencil falls in a mine shaft. And they don't work when the ink explodes in your pen because it's 110 degrees out. That happens. And there's a lot of times when they fail. So just consider that. But that being said, there are some frustrations with the technology. Now, there are applications coming online. Codify is one of them that help to mitigate some of these problems if they get it right. And uh, and that's... Um, very much looking forward to that. In fact, the people over at WildNote, which is another application where you can build forms and do exports, I'm actually interviewing them in a couple of weeks. So look for that on an upcoming episode. We're trying out the software right now. We're going to interview the founders and then we'll give you a good report on it. So, so with tap forms, though, for me to make those, well, for me to make the data into usable forms, the workflow I've come up with is to basically export it as a CSV file. Uh, there's other ways, and I'll talk about that in a second, but you basically export as a CSV file, and then you create a word merge document, it's called. It's mail merge document. That's what it used to be. The The idea behind mail merge was always, I've got a list of information that include people's contact information, and I want to create address labels. So you create a format for your address label that basically has these placeholders that say name, address, city, state, blah, 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 and then you have a whole bunch of those things, and then I just give it a list of data and each record populates one of those um, one of those forms. So it's the same thing with mail merge uh, using for documents, except that uh, the address label is an entire site record or an entire uh, table of data like a tin can reporting form or something like that or a photo log or whatever you have. So anyway, um, for the IMAX form for Nevada and for California DBR forms, it actually works really well. I usually have no problems with formatting. Um, it just comes right in uh, if you've got it set up right, and it works great. However, with uh, with the uh, inventory forms, and here in Nevada we use you know, tin cans, ceramics, miscellaneous artifacts, glass shards, uh, um, what else, uh, diagnostic glass. Um, you know, We have a number of, I think there's five forms in all that most people use. And they all have different column widths and things like that. And I've got all the fonts and formats and everything changed, but there's always something that I forget. And then I'll, you know, if you if you put it in tap forms in the field, then it goes straight over into your merge document exactly like that. And um, if you've got anything extra in your merge document or something like that, it's just going to add it to it, okay? So I always have issues, slight issues with the formatting. Now, that being said, I took a massive site um, just today as I'm recording this and created um, forms that equated to about 150 different artifacts with over 60 diagnostic artifacts and the photo logs and the photo pages. Now, I did have some formatting issues, um, but it took me about, I think, 45 minutes maybe from the time that I exported out of tap forms to the time I was finished creating all the tables and all the pages, which, if you know anything, that was 66 photographs. Um, 150 artifacts with over 60 diagnostics. Oh, and the feature records as well. And I did all that in about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, because I spent time cleaning up the data. I spent time organizing the data, and then I spent time merging the data, and and then pulling all that and putting it in the site record. So if you know anything about that process, that's lightning fast. I mean, it probably would have taken somebody from paper forms, you know, probably the day to type all that stuff up and then get it formatted and then to get it usable. So it's still pretty fast, but there are issues. There are frustrations. Until somebody invents a way to just create the Word document or create the PDF, which Codify is working on, then um, you still have to deal with this stuff. But even with all the frustrations, as long as you know 
what the potential issues are, as long as you know what the problems are, then you can overcome those. Um, you can just say, okay, I might encounter this. That's fine. It didn't take me nine hours to do this. It took me nine minutes. Okay. Um, things like Codify and other stuff that'll come on down the line, I'm sure, you know, take seconds, but that's, uh, that's good. And sometimes this Tapform stuff using the mail merge, I mean, I've done simple sites before that didn't have a lot of complexity to them. I mean, it really is seconds. There's no formatting, no changes, no anything that needs to be done. So it's pretty quick. Um, Okay, so I mentioned Tabforms 5. I'm going to be upgrading to that um, once I get done with these couple reports i got to write. Uh, I just finished one today. I've got another report to write um, tomorrow and, and probably through the beginning of next week. Once I finish those, I'm going to be upgrading my uh, laptops, my laptop and computers to Tabforms 5, and then all my tablets and my smartphone to Tabforms 5. I still have a question into the developer to figure out whether or not all my forms are going to merge seamlessly into Tabforms 5, because I'd be damned if I'm going to recreate those all over again. But uh, I'll definitely be doing that. Some of the features I've noted just from reading the descriptions of Tabforms 5 are they've got a, a really awesome photo grid view. So if you're taking a lot of photos, like your photo log and stuff, it sounds like you can look at all that stuff in a grid and then tap on it and see the data. And that sounds pretty cool. Um, integrated forms a little better. I'm not really sure what that means until I really get into it. I've got integrated forms on my form. So if you're in one form, you can quickly jump to another form. Um, but it's a little clunky. And I'm hoping there's some things in there that they've fixed that are taken care of in Tapforms 5. And I'll, I'll definitely report back on that when I've had time to play with it. Uh, there are other enhancements, but um, that's about it. So uh, that's all I can tell you for now anyway, until I get into it and really get a chance to tear it down. If anybody happens to be using Tapforms 5, please send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnumberg.com. I want to talk to you, maybe bring you on the show and, uh, and, and see, what kind of, um, see what kind of experience you've had with it. So... Anyway, overall, I would say even with any frustrations, any uh, heat issues, any failure issues, um, using a tablet in the field or even a smartphone these days is still, still preferable to a stack of paperwork that, you know, anybody who's ever had their paperwork tied to their clipboard on a windy day trying to write something down, my God, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, And then dealing with that paperwork, once you get back in the office, curating that paperwork, scanning that paperwork, dealing with dirty stuff. It's just, um, it's a nasty, nasty, nasty nightmare. So, all right, well, we're going to take a break real quick and uh, we'll come back and talk about a few other things. This will probably be a slightly shorter show. I've got some notes here, but um, just so you know, and uh, as you're, as you're listening to the next uh, ad for another podcast, or um, actually I think we've got an ad for Codify coming up. Uh, As you're listening to that, be thinking, um, you know, whether or not you want to co-host this show uh, or even temporarily, if you just want to come on and talk about something, that'd be great. So, all right, back in a second. This episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast is made possible by Codify Incorporated. Codify is a California benefit corporation that can help you with your digital archaeological needs. Visit codify.com today to find out how Codify can help you go paperless in 2017. That's www.codify.com. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. And I just wanted to talk uh, real quick at the beginning of segment two here about the On Point app developed by Chris Cameron of Field Technologies Incorporated. Um, I'm calling it an app, but that's really just short for application because I'm pretty sure it's desktop uh, at this point because of the processing power it takes to, to run it. But uh, it's basically a projectile point identification app. It takes an image um, without anything else in it, no scale, no anything, and it's supposed to return a projectile point. Well, he's had some uh, some praises and some criticisms of late, and that's to be expected with any new technology or any new tool. Um, I think the idea is going in the right direction. Um, one of the 
one of the criticisms that quite honestly I didn't even think about is references. Um, there's no references being generated that somebody can say, you know, they can't, they're not going to cite the on point app. Typically they're going to cite the primary source. The difficulty with the on point app being able to cite a primary source is that it doesn't really work that way. You know, he shows the application uh, or he shows the AI associated with the application, you know, 20 to 30 photos and says, this is an Elko corner notch point. Okay. The AI looks at every single photo of an Elko corner notch point and develops a picture in its own mental digital brain and says, okay, that's an Elko corner notch. So when he sees another shape similar to that, it's going to say, that's an Elko corner notch. The more shapes you feed it that you confirm are the same thing, the better the AI is supposed to get. Uh, the one problem we all know about that is you can look a, at a page of, of Elko Corner Notches or Adena Points or Rosegate or whatever you want, and there sometimes are a lot, is a lot of variation involved. Um, the OnPoint app isn't using size as a necessarily determining factor because there's no scale in there. So if I take a point that's five centimeters tall and a point that's three centimeters tall and they're the same morphology or the same shape, but I zoom in and they fill up the whole frame, they could look like the exact same point when in fact they're two different points, okay? So it's not really taking that into account. Um, if that's not true, Chris, if you're listening, please let me know uh, if that if it is doing that. But we interviewed Chris on another show uh, a few episodes back, and I didn't get the impression that it was doing that. So we'll have to see. Anyway, um, I think that uh, this is definitely the right way to go. I've been thinking about an app exactly like this for a very long time now, and I'm glad somebody's doing it. I'm glad Chris has taken this on, and I hope that uh, I hope that he can take the criticisms, good and bad, um, with a grain of salt, and and take them as a professional and say, all right, well, let's take that and let's add it to the app, or let's not, and and see how it goes. Um, I hope him. I hope he has a lot of success with this and can really. Uh, can really develop this into something great because I think it could be used for other applications as well. And I think it can end up being a primary resource in itself. Uh, it'll list references. He's working on that now. But, you know, once people start trusting the references, soon that becomes the source. So, uh, and once the AI gets smart enough, that's another technological philosophical question in itself. Can AI be a reference if it's machine learning? If it's, you know, if me, Chris Webster, publishes a paper and says, this is true, this is true, and this is true. Well, I just became a source. I might not be a credible source until a whole bunch of people cite me, but I just became a source, okay? So if the AI is a thinking machine and does its own learning and then does its own determinations, can it not also be a source? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about before a very brief app of the day segment is DigTech Concierge. Now, I hate the word concierge personally. Uh, I think it's I think it's weird and pretentious, but... What concierge means at uh, uh, at like a hotel, like a fancy hotel or something like that, is basically you can call this person and get anything you want. If you want to know where the best restaurant is, that's great. If you want them to run out and grab you a cheeseburger, they probably will at the fancier places. Um, so if you want other exotic things, they'll probably get you those too. So that's what that means. Um, what I've been thinking about is creating another service for dig tech. Um, again, this is moving me away from field archaeology, which I'm fine with because there are plenty of great field archaeologists out there and I don't need to cloud up the space. Um, I started doing that and I'm still doing some field work because quite frankly, it pays the bills, but I'd rather do the stuff that I have better strengths in. Um, I feel like I'm pretty decent at field work, but I'll be honest with you. I hate report writing. <laughs> I hate sitting down and just writing a report. Some people love it and they should do it. I hate it and I shouldn't do it. Um, so that being said, 
I get several calls or emails or text messages or Facebook messages or tweets a week, a week with people saying, hey, um, you know, I want to do this uh, with my company and I want to take them digital or I want to buy this tablet or I want to buy this piece of technology or I want to buy this thing. What do you think about that? Um, have you ever used it? Does it work? What should I do? And I always give them the best answer I can. Um, if I don't know, I tell them I don't know. Uh, if I haven't used it, I tell them I haven't used it. But I have used most things. Um, and I do know, I keep my you know, not just in archaeology, um, am I am I keeping an eye on it for different podcasts and things I'm doing, but I'm also keeping an eye on technology. I listen to tech podcasts. I watch tech video podcasts. Um, I've watched the Apple keynote every year for the past probably seven years. Um, I watch the Google I.O. conference when I can. Um, anytime Windows comes out with something new, you know, like once every 15 years, then I watch that. But um, Anyway, I keep my eye on the space, and I wouldn't expect you to do that uh, if you're working at a firm right now or something like that. I wouldn't expect you to do that. You got to focus on the archaeology. You got to focus on the latest articles in you know American antiquity or pick your journal of choice. You got to focus on that, um, and and also uh, technology can be expensive, uh, especially if you get the wrong tech. If you if you as a company think, wow, we need this, uh, I think we're going to buy ten of them. And that just cost you $5,000 and it doesn't, turns out they don't work the way you thought they were going to work. It turns out um, they don't work as well, or it's not increasing your efficiency, or maybe you're just trying to jam these into your workflow so you guys can look all technological to your clients, but it's really more of a hindrance. And that does happen. Um, sometimes paper wins. Sometimes, um, sometimes other technology wins. Sometimes it doesn't have to be high tech. Sometimes it can be low or medium tech, <laughs> if that's a thing. Um, and also things change too fast. You know, let's say you bought this new high tech device and you want to use it. And uh, maybe you saw it late. Maybe you took a while to come to your decision. Who knows? But you buy them and six months later, they're unsupported company goes out of business or ever the world is on to something else and and you're now left with this this ancient technology now for all intents and purposes that just nobody else is using anymore and more importantly is unsupported you don't want unsupported technology um, and that just means the company's either out of business or they've moved on to something else and they're just not giving you the support that you need whether it's um, technical support with how to use it or hardware support with how to fix it so that's a problem and this is what i love guys um, and gals ladies, gentlemen, all you people out there. This is what I love. I've been doing it for at least 20 years, you know, ever since uh, ever since I got my first computer, honestly, so more than 20 years. Jesus, uh, sit and think about it. Ever since I got my first computer in high school, I've just been fascinated by this whole space and I've been trying to keep up and, and not necessarily get the latest thing just to have the latest thing, but because I think it's exciting. It's exciting seeing what the human brain can come up with to either enhance or not our lives. And I just, I'm just absolutely um, excited by all that stuff. And, you know, when it comes down to Apple, I'm, I'm constantly promoting the iPads. Um, it's probably because... Apple came out with the really first viable tablet that was good enough for field use. It didn't have a keyboard. Um, you could put a case on it that closed up all its ports, and you could use it. And I bought that tablet, the first iPad 1, um, probably within a few days of it coming out. Uh, it was April of 2010. And I bought it, or maybe it was even March. I don't know, it was around there. But uh, I bought it within a few days, within that week of it coming out, and I instantly started taking it to class. I was in grad school at the time. Uh, I instantly started taking it to class and doing all my notes. I bought a keyboard and I was trying to do everything I possibly could on that tablet. Um, they had versions of Apple's pages and numbers immediately. Um, the 
Apple, the Microsoft stuff came out not too long after that. So I was able to do all my notes and everything in class and sketches and stuff. And, and I always type my notes anyway, but now I could carry something way lighter than my heavy laptop. So anyway, like I said, it's what I love. Um, used it in the field immediately. We had a project that we were doing as a class that summer and we used the iPad. I, I handed it to other people and I said, here, collect our data this way. And then, you know, we didn't have to type anything up. We had everything instantly accessible to us. So let me tell you about DigTech Concierge and what I want to do with it a little bit. Um, this I would be your, uh, me or somebody that works for DigTech that's highly trained and that is certified with all these things. They wouldn't go, I wouldn't send them into a client conversation without making sure they know what the heck they're talking about. Um, but I would either be, uh, DigTech would be your one-time consultant. You could just call us up and say, hey, we want a few hours of your time to, to look over this thing. Um, and your, uh, and I would say the first hour, first hour, people is always going to be free. After that, you know, we'll have to be compensated for our time. But after that, um, that first hour, we can probably cover most of your questions about something in the first hour and you can see if you want to continue. Um, so we can be either your one-time uh, consultant or your digital hetero life mate, if anybody knows who that quote is from, not the digital part, then you get bonus points. But what I mean by that is you can, I'm thinking a year really is a good time frame, but I might come down to six months and you can basically have DigTech on retainer for six months to be, to answer all of your questions. Um, you could call us up anytime, drop us an email. We'll have special Slack teams just for your company and DigTech to have conversations. And, uh, we can be there to answer questions. We can sit in on meetings, either virtually or physically. Um, we can do training at your headquarters or remotely. So if you do get a whole bunch of new technology and you want to train your staff on how to use it, we can do that um, because we will do the work to figure out how best to use these things in the field if we haven't already. And then we can come to you and show you how best to use it so you don't have to spend your precious um, project money time because you don't want to spend overhead. Nobody wants to use that overhead code but you want to use that project code. <laughs> so um, rather than have somebody at $120 an hour figure out how to use this newfangled technology, just give DigTech a call and say, hey, we're going in the field next week. Come on over and show us the best way to use this and we'll do it. So I think that's the best way to do things, quite honestly. Um, let us figure out the bugs. Let us know the best way. Uh, we'll, we'll let you know the best way to do something and increase your efficiency and to ultimately grow your bottom line. So... I guess my best analogy for this is you wouldn't hesitate to hire a lithics or a ceramics expert. You you wouldn't hesitate to hire a geoarchaeologist. You wouldn't hesitate to um, send your samples out for, you know, radiocarbon dating or thermal luminescence or something like that because you're not an expert in that field. You're an expert in the archaeology of your area, okay? You're not an expert in those things. So if you wouldn't do that, then why would you do your own tech? That's way more expensive than most of this other stuff that you're talking about, okay? Way more expensive and just as important to keeping your company going and keeping your company alive. So I'm going to end this little PSA for Dig Tech um, just because I can. It is my podcast. <laughs> so I need a co-host fast. Otherwise, this will turn into the Dig Tech instead of Archaeotech show. Just kidding. Anyway, send me an email. Uh, you can send one at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. It all goes to the same place. But if you want to be a little more specific, you can send it to my DigTech email. And that is chriswebster at digtech, D-I-G-T-E-C-H dash LLC.com. That's chriswebster at digtech dash LLC.com. And I'll be happy to answer any questions. Um, I should be setting this up by August 1st. 
And I'll have a way on DigTechLLC.com, the website, to uh, basically um, request a free hour or uh, pay for a few hours of my time or sign up for the six-month or one-year uh, retainer fee. And there'll be some options with that depending on where you're at and how many times you want me to come to your office or how many times you want to you want to basically secure me coming to your office. And I can come pretty much at any time within reason, probably within a couple of weeks notice, uh, maybe even less if you're local. And by local, I mean within like a day's driving me uh, from Reno, Nevada. So pretty much anywhere in California, Nevada, most of Utah, Oregon, I can probably be there in about a day to do training for you. So that's not a problem. But that'll be factored in. You'll have so many visits factored in. And then you can obviously, if you're doing a year or six months at a time, you'll get a discounted rate for in-house trainings, um, for additional in-house trainings. And uh, and all that should be on the website by the end of this month, like I said, early August. Um, if you're ready to go now, send me an email. We'll work something out um, because I can work around my report schedule. <laughs> they should be done soon. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to come back and mention one application that I've been using quite a bit lately and uh, finally know a little bit about. Back in a second. Hey, everyone. Here's a new program from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, BC. SFU Archaeology's professional HRM graduate program exists to train the next generation of leaders in the diverse and dynamic CRM industry. Taught by and for CRM professionals, each of their four online courses delves into a key dimension of CRM, law and policy, ethics and practice, business management, and research design and methods. The MA thesis requirements meet RPA standards and your interest in unlimited career advancement. Check them out online at SFU HRM Archaeology. Spots are filling up for next fall's cohort, so apply today. Okay, welcome back to the app of today segment. So I'm essentially going to talk about three things now. Uh, first, iBeacons. Okay, Apple essentially invented the iBeacon a number of years ago. I, I, I'm not going to say how many. It was less than probably six or seven. Uh, but Probably not that far. Anyway, what an iBeacon is, is it's basically, um, the easiest way to explain it is it's basically a Bluetooth device that uh, it's a little tiny thing, or it can be bigger, but you're usually really small things. And all it does is basically send out a signal. And applications, the easiest way to think about this is applications are basically set up to uh, know when that device is near based on ranges that you set, and then do something based on knowing that that device is near. Um, one of the simplest ways this is used, and I didn't even know how it was doing it at first, but if you have the Apple Store app on your phone, then um, when you walk, and the app doesn't even need to be open for this to work, but when you walk into an Apple Store or near an Apple Store, they've got iBeacons all over that place, and you instantly get push notifications and things like that that say, welcome to the whatever store. And uh, I haven't seen this yet, but there's no reason they couldn't actually... Um, you know, just tell you different deals they might having, although Apple never has deals, but, you know, pr- push you in a certain way. So retail outlets are starting to use iBeacons quite a bit uh, for this purpose. Another way they're being used is for navigation around like malls and big stores and stuff. Um, some of the bigger places, if you have to download their app for it to give you information. But basically, once you do that, it uses your Bluetooth to find these beacons and say, you know, so you can find out where you're at because location services inside a building doesn't work very well sometimes, right? Because you need, uh, you can't see the GPS, you're not, you're not getting a good GPS signal. So they put these iBeacons around so you can better know where you're at and your position. It's not necessarily doing a GPS location, but since it knows where the iBeacons are, then if it's pinging a couple of them, the app can tell you exactly where you're at right uh, to very high accuracy using just Bluetooth devices. So now why is this important for archaeology? Well, that's the question I always ask when I have new technology. So 
Uh, I actually purchased two iBeacons. Um, it cost me, I think, $15 a piece from a place called Social Retail. Um, I was actually just looking on Amazon for some iBeacons for the cheapest ones I could find. They have some that, um, again, the cheapest ones just do Bluetooth. But some of them have, like, accelerometers inside of them. Some of them actually have GPS uh, that will do all kinds of neat little things. And the accelerometer ones, maybe they're activated by, you know, a change in speed or something like that. But basically, I bought these little iBeacons, and once I finally turned them on, uh, sometimes, depending on what you're doing with them, uh, you might need two applications. I ended up having to get two applications to get mine to work initially. So I downloaded an app called Beacon Set, and that's B-E-A-C-O-N, S-E-T. Now that allowed me to basically read the beacon and then I can uh, I can basically look at the health of the beacon, you know, what's its signal output, what's the battery look like. I can set the UUID, which is the un- uh, it's a unique code that's associated with that beacon and that's going to be important in a minute. Um, I can see how far away it is. I can monitor all my beacons. I can, you know, do whatever I want. I can give it a name. Um, I can do all kinds of stuff. So once I did that and I copied and pasted that UUID, I then downloaded an app, and I looked at a bunch of them, trust me, a bunch of them. Um, But I downloaded one called Beacon, confusingly spelled B-E-E-C-O-N. And this app allows you to do some really fun things. Once you associate an iBeacon with it, um, so now it knows the UUID, that's how you do that. You give it the UUID, that iBeacon, it knows where it's at. You can set up different actions. And this also works with um, IFTTT, if this, then that. So, for example... I set one up in my truck and it's just sitting in a little cubby. You don't even know it's there. Um, When I get, it does two things for me. One, when I get, uh, when I get in the truck, my phone then knows that I'm in the truck. Okay. Um, It sends me a push notification because we live in a parking, we live in a building with a parking garage and a gate key to get out. And sometimes I forget that key and sometimes I forget my wallet. So I get a push notification that says, wallet and gate key exclamation points. (laughs) Um, When I get out of the truck, sometimes I'll leave my wallet in the glove box or in the little cubby thing. And I've got a push notification on my phone when I get too far from the truck, which is usually about 15 feet. um, It sends me a push notification that just says wallet. So I don't forget my wallet in my truck. I know, pretty stupid. But anyway, um, so I set that up. I also set it up so, um, and this one hasn't, this one I just got working because I had some issues with it. But I set one up with IFTTT where uh, basically, the beacon knows that I get in the truck, and then it starts looking at my location, IFTTT does. And when I get to my Civil Air Patrol headquarters in my office, it sends a notification to the Civil Air Patrol Slack team in one of the specific channels that says the squadron commander is in the building um, because I have office hours, and that way people will know. When I leave, it says the squadron commander has left, and that's pretty cool. And that's all tied between the iBeacon, my phone, and IFTTT. So... Uh, a couple other things I use this for. I have the other one up in my office here at the Reno Collective, and I have it set up to remind me to check my calendar in the morning when I first walk in. And then when I leave, I have it again reminding me to not forget my wallet, which is a little more important here at the Collective because if I walk out the front door and I don't have my wallet, which contains my key fob that allows me back in the front door, then I'm locked out <laughs> unless someone happens to be here. So that's pretty important. I have that set to a pretty close proximity. So when I get about um, you know three or four meters from my desk, it goes off. A little annoying if I'm going back and forth, like down to the kitchen or here to do a podcast in the studio or something like that. Um, But I've got the range set. So if I go to the bathroom, which is right next door to my office, it doesn't go off. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does when when it loses a signal for some reason and then it reacquires. That's like entering the zone again. Um, But how can this be used for archaeology? Well, let me tell you. uh, One of the ways I want to set this up, and all it is is changing the push notification, 
uh, is basically um, you can set it up any number of ways. You can throw it in your backpack. Uh, a lot of other times when you're out surveying and you stop and record a site, at least out here in the West, um, a lot of people actually set their pack down, set it down by the datum or set it down in a bush somewhere or whatever, and then they'll go off and record the site, right? If they're crew chief or whoever, they'll go off and record the site. So you could set it up. You could set all the tablets up, actually, um, if you're running full tablets in the field, to where when everybody comes back to you, anytime they come back to you or your pack or wherever you've got the beacon at, set it out of close range so it doesn't go off all the time. You could set it up so it sends them a push notification that says, have you backed up and transferred your data? Have you backed it up on your own device and have you transferred it to the crew chief, putting it on essentially three locations, really two physical locations, but three data locations. And that's pretty neat. Um, you could also set one up in the vehicle. So when everybody gets back to the truck, it says, you know, have you done this? Have you done that? Did you stretch out at the end of the day? Whatever you want it to say. Um, if every time you get in the vehicle, you have to say record mileage, let's say that. You could have two things. One, it could have a push notification that says, did you record your mileage? And then you can have it actually open another application, the one that you record your mileage in. Um, that one I've had a little bit harder time getting to work because you have to find the unique application ID, which is not easy to find. Um, but that being said, um, it can open an application for you if you set it up right. And it can also, like I said, integrate with IFTTT. So if you have uh, cell service where you're doing all these things, you can have it do any number of things. You can say, uh, if you get one with an accelerometer, you can say you can set up a a big location range that says, you know, this is where my project area is. When you exit that project area, it can send an email or a text message to the project manager or whoever back in the office that says the crew is on their way home. A little bit big brother, but at least you know you're safe, right? Um, they know that, hey, everything went fine and they're on their way back. Um, if you see that at nine o'clock in the morning and you know something's not fine <laughs> and they're on the way back too early. So I think iBeacons have a lot of um, interesting applications. Um, they're a really close cousin to RFID chips, which I really want to get into. I'd love to see some RFID um, encoded pin flags. So when you flag out a site, rather than just dropping the flag and moving on um, or tying a piece of tape to it or writing on the flag that says what it is that you're doing or using color-coded flags, which people think is a great idea, but then ultimately never works because you don't have enough um, or they weren't distributed evenly or whatever. It just never works. If you had RFID encoded flags and an RFID encoding device attached to your tablet or smartphone, you could drop a flag on a projectile point and not only say this is a point, but you could say what type it is. You can give any amount of information. Don't go overboard because you're going to record it anyway, but you could add a bunch of information. And then the crew chief, uh, after you've done site recording, can basically activate this on their tablet. Again, I don't know if this exists, but it should. Uh, and then basically map out the site in flags and know exactly what they have, give everything in a number, assign that number, push it out to the RFID chips. And then when you go up to record that, you already know it's artifact one or artifact five because you can read the chip with your device. So that's really not hard and it's existing technology. Uh, it's something that could be done immediately right now. We just need somebody to fund it and get it done. So Anyway, that's all I've got. Hopefully, uh, hopefully for next time, we'll have a co-host. Um, I might be using Mr. Richie Cruz. He's a friend of mine and a colleague who lives here in town. We do the You Call This Archaeology podcast, which is not out for subscription yet, but does play live every week um, at 3 p.m.-ish. Check the Archaeology Podcast Network Facebook page. But we try to do it around 3 p.m. on Fridays um, live, so check that out. Also, feel free to check out our other shows. And again, I'll mention it one more time. Go to uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash members to 
check out our membership site and help support the Archaeology Podcast Network. You get some great things. Um, we got a lot more things coming down the line, some really cool stuff in the works for the for the membership site. Um, right now, the very least, you're just helping support us. Uh, we need all the support we can get. If you notice, if you're on the ball, this podcast is coming out a little bit late, and I've got a few other podcasts coming out late. It's because I don't have anybody to help. Um, that's the first thing we're going to do is hire somebody to help out with the editing and the uh, and the posting. I think Richie's going to be doing that here in about a week or so. Uh, for about a month, I'm going to hire him, and um, hopefully in that amount of time, we can get enough of you guys to uh, come over and subscribe. A number of you have already, and I thank you for that, um, and it's, it's really appreciated. But uh, I don't want to sound like an NPR pledge drive, but... You know, and if we had a tote bag to give away, I'd give it to you. But instead, you get a T-shirt if you subscribe at the right level. So, anyway, um, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot for putting up with just me today. And uh, hopefully, next time I'll have a co-host, and we'll uh, we'll keep this thing rolling. Again, arcpodnet.com forward slash members, digtech llccom Check out all the things, and uh, like, subscribe, and share, and do all the fun things, and let people know this podcast exists so they can have help too. All right, thanks a lot. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.